that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program. Uh, welcome to an hour of critical urban discussions, and today we're going to London. I'm your host, Andy Longhurst, and on the program, we'll be hearing from a variety of voices on why we need to be critical of the Olympics as an urban mega event. Over the next two weeks, um, we'll be looking um, from a variety of perspectives, and we'll be examining the impacts of the London Games on city finances, lower-income neighborhoods, public space, and civil liberties. On this program today, uh, we'll hear from author and games critic uh, Chris Shaw, uh, a little bit of history on the games and uh, some comparisons on Arsis, uh, London, and then also Professor Jules Boykoff, who is also a vocal games critic, and uh, to Julian Chain, who is um, a spokesperson for the Counter Olympics Network in London, and we'll be talking with him um, over the course of these next two weeks. So stay with us. This is The City. Mega events such as the Olympic Games have often been described as a preferred tool of place promotion and marketing, and a primary connection between the local and the global. The Olympics are a global spectacle literally taking place in a single locale. Olympic Games are tightly interwoven into the urban economy and redevelopment schemes. They are also an increasingly important driver in the creation of new leisure and consumption spaces and the interests of international property firms. Like all mega-events, the Olympics are almost exclusively an urban phenomena that require large public and private investments. While these investments are usually place-bound in the form of bricks-and-mortar infrastructure, they play a crucial role in, in tying local processes into wider economic circuits. Circuits that are not simply transnational, but transnationally competitive and recurrent as cities vie to host high-profile events, gatherings, and spectacles. Of the two types of games, the summer games are the most pronounced expression of this phenomenon. But recently the winter games have grown in size and are increasingly held in large metropolitan areas such as Salt Lake City, Torino, or Vancouver. Our case study of the bid, planning and development stages for the Vancouver Whistler 2010 Winter Games, embodies an instance of a selectively transnationalized local growth machine. Its primary function is to balance the traditional political power of locally-based growth coalitions with the need to respond to extraterritorial actors and coalitions, a growth machine diaspora. We thus characterize this growth machine diaspora as neither purely localized, nor as placeless and hyper-global, but as a group of dispersed actors in various selected locales that is bound together through common interests and beliefs in specific forms of urban development and growth. 
beliefs made more attainable through the vehicle of the mega event. And that's Suraberg, uh, Van Winsberg, and Wiley writing in the journal City, um, an urban geography, um, urban sociology, um, urban studies journal. And uh, this was in an article in a study uh, mapping the Olympic growth machine, transnational urbanism, and the growth machine diaspora. And I think it's interesting, um, a couple weeks back now, uh, talking about uh, the urban growth machine and had the opportunity to talk to uh, Dr. Harvey Malach at New York University, who originally theorized uh, the idea of the urban growth machine as a way to view urban politics and urban processes um, and to really um, unpack what goes on and how important property development is and and the property elite uh, who seek to benefit from a lot of these um, types of mega events. Um, So I think when, when looking at the games, we have to inherently ask who is benefiting Um, and who seeks to benefit uh, from these type of events. And I think this goes beyond, uh, you know, a lot of of people who uh, were on the critical side of of the Vancouver Games and and opposed to them um, were seen as party poopers or, um, you know, just finding something to gripe about. But this is, that's not the point, and that completely misses the point. Um, The point is... There, the stakes are high and a huge amount of money is being spent um, on these type of events. And we have to ask, who is benefiting? Um, because if priorities are, are changing, um, you know, local priorities, provincial priorities, federal priorities, um, all, at all levels, um, there's financial investment, certainly public investment going into the infrastructure um, and, the, and the security and the militarization around these games. So I think we have to go beyond that simple, and I think it's very much a distraction to say, to be called out for, you know, being, um, being angry or, or, um, or resentful or uh, just simply a, a, a party pooper, because no one likes a party pooper, uh, right? But, but, but going beyond that and unpacking uh, who benefits and if there is more to it than just a grand spectacle of sport. And as we see, and as uh, we'll, we'll hopefully explore throughout uh, the next two um, episodes of the city, um, certainly there are a lot of things at play and there are a lot of people involved and a lot of corporations and the games uh, increasingly um, have a corporate uh, tone to them. Sponsorship is the name of the game. Um, so to speak, and uh, there are brands to be protected. So we'll explore commercialization, militarization, the policing, uh, civil liberties, impacts on civil liberties in public space, and also um, property interests and uh, how they seek to benefit. Um, And certainly this uh, played out in Vancouver, and it is most certainly playing um, out in London, and specifically East London, and a lot of... um, uh, the, the the neighborhoods um, around uh, within East London. So um, just moving on, I want to now go to uh, Chris Shaw. And uh, Christopher Shaw is um, a professor um, within uh, uh, the University of British Columbia, um, but he's also um, uh, known uh, very much for his work and uh, uh being a vocal opponent of the Vancouver 2010 Games. And uh, in 2008, he published a book uh, called Five Ring Circus, Myths and Realities of the Olympic Games. And he uses Vancouver as the case study um, for unpacking these myths and realities. 
And uh, we're going to go to an interview. And uh, Chris Shaw does a, a great job of uh, talking about the history and contextualizing um, the, the current Olympic Games and how they came to be the way they are um, and whether, uh, whether so many of these promises um, actually have any merit. Again, this is Chris Shaw, author um, of uh, Five Ring Circus, Myths and Realities of the Olympic Games, um, and also one of the uh, founders of um, the Olympic uh, Resistance Network, um, which uh, started up to oppose the Olympic Games and the original Vancouver bid. The modern Olympic Games started at the end of the 19th. 19th century, a fellow named Pierre de Coubertin, uh, an, an aristocrat, Belgian, I believe, and, or, or French, decided he he wanted to recapture the spirit of the ancient Olympics and, and started an Olympic movement that had some ups and downs before it really began to kick in, in, in into a regular uh, into a regular feature in about the 1920s. And for much of its history, the Olympic Games was uh, was pretty amateur it really was amateur sports and the, the the athletes could not be professionals and it was people doing this as a hobby and people who came to watch it were, were doing it to just because of the love of the sport and it fairly rapidly uh, in the in the, in the 50s and 60s started to transition into something else and by the time the, uh, the 70s and 80s rolled around it had become a very big business the ioc before that before the 70s basically had trouble making ends meet. And then they discovered the magic of television marketing, and the television marketing began to become a significant revenue stream, that plus the various products and the sponsorships. So the IOC went from being a little hole-in-the-wall organization that had trouble putting on the games every four years to one that became a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And that's really when things radically began to change. And I guess the key, key date to remember is 1984, the Los Angeles Games, where uh, really television marketing came in, and uh, sponsorships came in in a really big way, such that the Los Angeles Games actually generated a modest profit. And that was partially because Los Angeles had the infrastructure, so they didn't actually have to build much, but also because they, the the Games generated so much in, income through the television and, and the, uh, the broadcasting that the IOC and the host city actually, actually did okay. They've never repeated that. They've, they've lost money, or uh, the IOC never loses money, but the the host cities have always lost money, and the host uh, territories have lost money ever since. Can you expand on that? And Pardon me? Can you expand on that and unpack uh, the role of the IOC? And I think a lot of people... Well, the, IOC, yeah. the IOC is the owner of the Olympic Games. They control the trademarks. They control all of the, the, the facets of games. They, they will take a piece of any Olympic action... Um, they hold, you know, copyright and intellectual property on, on virtually everything associated with uh, the word Olympic and the, and, the, and the Olympic Games. So they get paid every time every time a city wants to host them. First of all, there's a bid process. Uh, the the bid cities pay money at each stage of the bid bid process to the IOC. That's not refundable. And then once the city is chosen to be the host of the games. The cities are now sign licensing agreements and, and other other agreements with the IOC that basically allow, allows them to hold to, to carry out the games and to, in principle, keep some of the revenues that are generated. So it becomes a, a huge money making scheme, very far from the Coperton's original vision of being uh, pure sports for 
for the love of sports and, and, and sports as a vehicle to unite men, you know, humankind. And it is now a vast corporate empire. Uh, the IOC depends on whether it's winter or summer games, but pretty routinely they make several billion dollars each time they hold the games. And they do not pay taxes on their, on their uh, profits anywhere in the known world. Uh, they don't pay any taxes in Switzerland. Right. Now, that doesn't mean individual, individual IOC members don't pay taxes, but the, the, the organization itself pays none. They basically, in, in Switzerland, hold charitable status. And when you consider an organization that probably made, I don't know, 2 or $3 billion on the 2010 Winter Games, that's pretty remarkable. And so then the question is, what do they do with their, their vast financial uh, uh, windfalls? Well, we don't really know. The, the claim that the IOC makes is that the bulk of it gets given back to the, the National Olympic Committees and to the various sporting federations that are associated with the Olympics, but that we have to take their word on it because they also don't get audited. So we don't really know where those, those billions of dollars each time a games are held actually wind up. <laughs> Certainly the IOC members... Uh, live like royalty certainly they have uh certainly they seem to have no no lack of, of resources um but again you know maybe maybe they do give 92 percent of it away as they claim but then again that's still an awful lot of money that, that <laughs> flows into their coffers and again it's all unaccountable unaudited un, uncheckable by n- normal mortals and as far as i know the only country that could actually do it would be the swiss and they don't right in five ring circus you used Vancouver as the case study um, to talk about myths and realities of the Olympic Games. Right. Can you talk about and reflect upon, as we're on the eve of the London Games, um, what happened um, with the Vancouver Games and uh, relate that to what we're seeing uh, with the London Games? Well, actually, I spoke to a British reporter the other day, and he was, as we were talking about Vancouver versus London, the, the similarities are, are extremely apparent, and, and these are really cross the board. Um, for example, the cost overruns, usually bid cores come in with um, very under-evaluated uh, under numbers because they, they know very well that the citizenry wouldn't go for it if they came in with, with the realistic numbers. So the, what a routine feature of any Olympic Games is that the cost escalation for everything tends to be somewhere between five and ten times the original. And that was true for Vancouver. It's true for London. So, for example, the original uh, original bid core came in with a number that was that was something like six hundred and sixty million dollars of public money for staging the games. And in the end, we know it, 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 the, the total bill was was probably over seven billion of the dollars of public money. And that's not counting things like the Athens Village catastrophe. In London, the original bid was something like two point three billion. Uh, British pounds, and as of as of uh, this week, they seem to be somewhere between nine and thirteen billion pounds. Mm-hmm. So the the, the the escalation is is very typical. It was true in Greece. It was true in Sydney, Australia. It was true in essentially every place that's had the modern games in the last 20, 25 years. The other thing that that is a cookie cutter uh, that 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 it doesn't vary between cities is the security costs. Security costs are usually lowballed. They tend to come in something like 10, 10 times higher than the what, what are, what's originally stated. And what goes with them is a massive police and military presence that that people in those host cities and countries have to live with uh, for the duration of the games. Uh, that tends to involve road closures, uh, infringements of civil liberties. The IOC demands that um, there be no no visible protests, and, and most cities were only too happy to comply. For example, we had various signage bylaws here in Vancouver that 
took a lawsuit to, to soften. Same thing is happening in London. Basically, they, they commercialized the public space for the, the, the game sponsors. So Coca-Cola and Visa and RBC and all the various game sponsors get advertising in public spaces, commercialization of the commons. At the same time, your ability to dissent or to put on any kind of uh, counter counter to the games is severely constrained. So here in Vancouver, they were trying to put people into protest zones. They had that by the signage bylaw that would have restricted civil liberties significantly, plus a massive police presence. Um, and there was also in both both London and here in Vancouver and in other Olympic cities, uh, there is the harassment of dissidents. There is the uh, surveillance, constant surveillance. And in our case, we had the members of the Olympic Resistance Network were routinely followed, sometimes visited uh, practically daily in the months leading up to, to the Games. Uh, strongly suspected telephones and other electronic devices were, were, were tapped. Uh, certainly in my case, they seemed to know where I was all the time, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of whether I communicated that to anyone particularly. Um, and the, they keep they, they keep very very uh, close tabs on anyone they consider to be a game dissident. <clears throat> when you consider that their their main focus is supposed to be protecting from serious external threats, because the, the IOC is terrified of another Munich, and and as are our various governments, what they end up doing is they end up the threat ultimately becomes usually one of of, of protest, which casts the games in a bad light. So again, security becomes becomes this cumbersome thing, and civil liberties get tossed to the wind. Um, they make a lot of promises about arts legacies, about inclusivity, about uh, and, and those tend to go by the wayside fairly quickly. Uh, the arts the arts legacies do exist, but they are contributed again by government. They don't come from the IOC, so you get to make your own arts Olympiad to go with your Olympics. Um, the IOC demands certain infrastructure improvements and changes. These tend to be uh, very, very expensive for the host cities, but it's very clear that if you don't do them, your chances of getting the games are pretty slim. So in our case, we we got the uh, Sea the Sky Highway upgrade, which a lot of people didn't think was particularly necessary, considering the status of various roads in the province. And yet that became a must-have thing that the province felt it had to do in order to get the games. Uh, the, the environment is now considered to be the fourth pillar of Olympism. It's supposed to be very important that the games be green, and they never are. The destruction with uh, Eagle Ridge and other places in the Callahan were, were, were pretty awful, but that tends to be fairly typical for uh, winter games. And in London, they've, they've poured you know, hundreds of millions of tons of concrete and rebar, uh, and they've, transferred, uh, they've, they've impacted various marshlands and other areas in London for, for various aquatic events. Uh, not to mention uh, changing the, the character of, of London. So there's also, the, the above up and beyond the environmental stuff, there's also all the things that happen with kind of the social cleansing. Mm-hmm. What you have to remember that that the Olympic Games, in their modern form, are primarily designed by local entrepreneurs, usually developers, who have some sort, some part of the city they want to develop at taxpayer expense. And the games provide the venue to again gain access to that that area, and then get subsidies to develop it, so that they can then sell it after the games into the market. That was true in Vancouver. The whole thing was a real estate scam from the beginning, uh, courtesy of the original, the late Jack Jack Poole, uh, who actually admitted the same to to a series of, uh, of other realtors back in 2002. The same is true in London. The area they're developing is being hyper developed for. Uh, for real estate 
with you know enormous price tags on the apartments that are being built. So far from being socially inclusive, these are these are basically devices to make the the to gentrify the city and take those areas that have not yet been developed and enable the developers to develop more rapidly. Have you spoke? Um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, those 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 are the, those are the big picture items. So all of those things in different scales happen in every city. Right. Have you been in contact or spoken with um, those organizing against the games and heard from um, from them? And just do you have a sense of what's going on? And I know there is a lot going on, but it's it's so rarely covered that we don't hear about it. Well, there, there, there's stuff certainly going on in London. There are there are games opponents that are um, beginning to. Well, they've they've been they've been organizing for some time. So there are some protests planned. Probably not the scale that Vancouver saw, but there are some protests planned. Certainly, other cities have have organized sometimes much much earlier and more more effectively. So, for example, in Chicago, there was an extremely effective organization called No Game Chicago that I think was largely responsible for defeating Chicago's bid for the 2016 games. Um, others, we've been, in, you know, we were, we worked closely with them. We worked uh, with a group in Norway uh, to to stop the Tromso 2018 bid. Uh, other other cities have been a little slow to recognize what's what's happening. For example, Rio is now seeing the clearance of, of many of the, of the favelas right. or the, the various sites and you know massive displacement of the poor. Um, uh, but there is a there is a growing anti-Olympic movement that that is beginning to connect up the, the, the various groups in different countries. So there's a no Sochi, Sochi 2014 is where, where the, the Winter Games will be. So they, they have ties with us, with the Chicago group, <coughs> with the Rio group, with the London group, and, and various other organizations that have, have arisen in the last few years. We haven't seen anything yet in South Korea, but South Korea, uh, I, I think the, the, the opposition really hasn't had time to coalesce. They, they, the South Koreans have been bidding for Pyeongchang for three rounds already before mm-hmm. they finally got it. So, but but there is there's certainly more coordination between anti anti Olympic groups than there was uh, when we started back in 2010. Do you think ultimately this um, the organizing and, and sharing experiences and, and working um, to resist the games in all its various ways is will it ever be enough? I think I, I think two things are going to happen. One, I think we, you know, when when Chicago started their no games organization, they had what we had developed over the previous five six years to actually help them, and it helped them an enormous amount. You know, we we had learned a lot of lessons, what to do, what not to do. Mm-hmm. They they really were able to apply those very successfully. <clears throat> and so I think different organizing groups in the future will have, you know, with with my book and other books that have been written and the various kind of organizing manuals that are out there and then now the history of what it, what an Olympic resistance looks like, there is now the potential for people to start organizing, not have to start from square one. So I think I think that that's that's certainly one thing that's gonna happen. Uh, and that it, that has begun to happen. The other thing is the games have become so absurdly expensive that every city that gets them feels compelled to put on the most uh, spectacular of events and and you know to build more infrastructure, do more and more things. That the games have just become so expensive that even a city like London is going to find the burden, the economic burden of it, 
overwhelming. Well, and this is also going to be increasingly coming at a time of uh, growing austerity, I would imagine, right? Well, absolutely. So in a time of growing austerity, if you remember the riots last year, which were triggered, you know, the initial impetus was the killing of a, of a black teenager by the police. Yeah. But what drove the, the anger in the, in the community was the, the lack of jobs, the lack yeah. of opportunities for many, many uh, uh, racialized and marginalized youth. And it, it, it did not fail to dawn on a lot of people who were in those riots that while, while they were you know, basically fighting to, to have any role in their society at all, besides just being you know, very, either unemployed or wage slaves, they looked across at this, you know, this, this Olympic village that was going up to house the world's athletes and the IOC that was going to live like royalty and thought, well, you know, what, what gives them the right to do that here in our, in our country? And, you know, the same thing happened here. So I think in different countries there is a growing recognition that this is essentially, this is, this is very much like the Occupy Vancouver, Occupy Wall Street movement. You know, why is the 1% yet again getting away with everything and and the rest of us get, get peanuts or crumbs from the table. So it, it's, it's getting harder in times of austerity to justify the, these gains, the extraordinary expenses that citizens of, of the various countries have to pay. I mean, so you look at what's happening in Greece, the Greek uh, economic crisis can be laid in many ways at the cost of the 2004 games. Hmm. They, the, the cost to the country was so enormous that Greece never recovered. Hmm. They, they, they went into kind of an economic death spiral largely due to the you know, 20 plus billion dollars they spent getting Athens ready for the games and what was it what was the outcome for Athens well the, the, the stadiums are locked up there because they're falling to pieces there's almost nothing to show for the games besides the fact that they held them and they still have ridiculous unemployment and they're, they're now fighting you know to, to keep their head above water and then what, what they're going to get is the IMF coming in and dictating uh, austerity measures and the sell you know the the, the the, the fire sale of, of some of their nation, national, national and, and, and natural resources. In Vancouver, we have, you know, uh, overall, we have, we have the white elephant of the Olympic Village, which is going to haunt, you know, taxpayers in the city for a long time to come. And in both in, in London and in Athens and in Sydney and other places where the games are held, the resources get pulled into that, that city where, the, where they're held and pulled away from the rest of the country. So, for example, who did well in Prince George based on the Vancouver game. I suspect nobody. Mm-hmm. Who's going to do well in the rest of England <clears throat> based on the London games? I don't even think London will, but even if, if anyone did, it wouldn't be people in York or Manchester or Birmingham or the other areas of the country that are you know, in recession. And that's, that, that's, you know, that's so typical. So I think ultimately people are, are getting wiser to, to this and recognizing that these, these, these games have to be scaled back significantly or or curtailed altogether. What about hold, holding them in one one place? <laughs> you have the infrastructure. And, well, absolutely, and, and, right. and that, that has, that's been raised by lots of people. Helen Lenski, who's probably the world's you know, most renowned scholar on the Olympics, has suggested that, and the, and the Bread Not Circuses group in, in Toronto made exactly the same, same suggestion. They said, well, why does this circus have to move? Why not just, you've built it, you've got one in Europe, you've got one in, in, in North America. You, you, whatever number you have, that's enough. You don't have to keep the circus moving. But that's a little bit like asking why, you know, the TV series Survivor has to move to a different location. <laughs> Would you watch it again if it were going to be held in the same place you just saw? The answer is no. Or at least the IOC thinks the answer is no. So the IOC has to move the circus partially because they, they remember, it's all an economic shell game to get their television revenues. If they hold it in the same place, how many people are going to turn in to see it in the same place again? 
At least that's the fear. That's why they try and distribute it geographically. That's why they try and move it. And also, how many people want to go through the experience again? You know, sure, it was fun for some people, but do you really want your roads closed again? Do you want the security thing on your head again? Do you want the civil liberties violations again? Do you want to pay for it again? Mm-hmm. Even though the next time around you might actually do better financially because you're not building all the infrastructure. But infrastructure does decay, so it's not, it's not like it's free at any time. Okay. So there are a number of reasons for, for not doing that. I mean, it, it, but you know, the other thing that's been raised as, as a good plan is why not have it in multiple sites? In other words, if you're going to have it, let's say, in pick a city, um, London, why not have the games of the various uh, sports distributed across the United Kingdom? You could do that. Right. But then again, that, that doesn't solve the underlying local rationale, which is real estate. You can't get, you cannot sell real estate in in York because you don't want to sell real estate in New York. You want to sell real estate in London. So if you pull people away to the different venues, you're not going to be able to do that. So you know the the underlying local reason for 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 having it is gone. Well, Chris, but, yeah, but there's no reason you couldn't actually. And and in various bids bids have actually talked about that. They, they, New York's bid actually was creative in the sense it was it was ridiculous in some ways, but it was very creative in the sense they said, well, we'll have some of the events in New York City, we'll have events outside New York City, we'll have events as far away as you know actually upstate New York. They're even talking about sharing with 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 Montreal some of the events, which all would have, would have been great, right. but that would defies the logic of what the modern Olympics actually are. I would suspect austerity and the end of growth may may be the end <laughs> to I oh I, I think I think it's just gonna yeah. it's gonna price itself out of, of out of any rational range. And yeah. then then only only countries that don't have to answer to the citizenry are gonna be able to to, to have it. So you, you can have it in Russia and China for a while because right. you know, what 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 you, what's gonna happen if you protest in Sochi? Well nothing good. <laughs> yeah. But but ultimately it's just it's gonna become People will see it increasingly as the white elephant. And again, you know, the internet is a very powerful, very powerful tool. And everything we've written and, and said, I think the Chicago people wrote and said, the stuff that's now coming out of out of Rio, the stuff that will probably come out of Russia in whatever form, these are things that are beginning to have larger and larger impacts. So the the, the number of people who actually oppose it at the at, at the onset is actually growing. Right. Well, Chris Shaw, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Bye bye.
Purity Rings and, uh, excuse me, Purity Ring um, with their new album, uh, Shrines, and the track, uh, Fine Shrine. And uh, before that music break, uh, you heard uh, Chris Shaw. He is author of Five Ring Circus, Myths and Realities of the Olympic Games. And uh, that conversation was from uh, July 16th, um, talking uh, just at the lead up to the London Games. And now uh, we're a number of days into the Games. Uh, Opening ceremonies were on uh, this past Friday. Um, uh, Today is Tuesday the 31st. Um, So a a bit into the Games, and we've already seen uh, some of um, the mobilization against the Games. and I don't think uh, we're seeing the same degree um, of mobilization on the ground um, that we saw in Vancouver, um, which is uh, quite interesting considering London, a size uh, city, the size that it is. Um, not to say that there isn't a lot going on. And uh, in the last uh, part of the show, we're going to hear from Julian Chain, um, and he is a spokesperson for uh, the Counter Olympics Network, and that is the local organization uh, working to mobilize against the games. Um, so that's to come in the later part of the show, specifically. Uh, he'll be talking about the militarization um, of public space and the, the clampdown of London, specifically the East End of London, and uh, that'll be uh, towards the uh, end of the show. Um, but first, we're going to go to uh, Amy Goodman um, and Democracy Now!, talking with Professor Jules Boykoff, and he is um, uh, a scholar uh, studying political science, uh, scholar studying uh, social movements and um, resistance to the Olympic Games. He's written on the Vancouver 2010 Games and the New Left Review, um, among uh, many other scholarly uh, publications and journals, and uh, he's there um, as a visiting um, scholar, um, and he's uh, been there uh, for a number of months. So, this is uh, Amy Goodman uh, with uh, today's Democracy Now! 
um, coverage of the London Games and talking about uh, some of the recent uh, events, including um, uh, a number of critical mass writers um, were arrested um, the day of the opening ceremonies on, on the, the past Friday. So uh, this is uh, going to Amy Goodman. And again, I want to thank Democracy Now! Uh, for that coverage um, in conversation with Jules Boykoff. We begin our show with the 2012 Summer Olympic Games, where 10,000 athletes from across the world are competing at the Olympic Park in East London. While NBC has been airing wall-to-wall coverage of the Games, little attention has been paid to what has taken place just outside Olympic Park. In the latest crackdown on dissent, London police arrested 182 people Friday for taking part in the monthly critical mass bike ride. The ride took place during the Olympics opening ceremony. The cyclists say they were kettled by police and held overnight. One of those arrested was a 13-year-old schoolboy. Another was a protester who identified herself as Melanie. These want to stamp out dissent. That's, that's why I was arrested. And John Carlos, who's an Olympic hero, came to speak in London a short while ago. And he got us to, during his talk, he, he got us to repeat, I am not afraid of offending my oppressor. So I'd just like to do that right now, really, because I think, I think that's really important that we're not silenced by uh, heavy-handed authorities um, trying to stamp out any kind of, of, of dissent. You know, we have, we have a right to do this in, in a democratic society. We ought to be able to, to challenge. And it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate that people are um, treated as criminals for speaking the truth, is what it comes down to. So, uh, please repeat after me. I am not afraid of offending my oppressor. I am not afraid of offending my oppressor. London has rolled out its largest security operation since World War II. Approximately 18,200 armed forces personnel are now providing security for the Olympic Games, almost double the number of British troops serving in Afghanistan. Helicopters, fighter jets, bomb disposal units are all on standby. The Ministry of Defense has also attached missile launchers to roofs of some London residential buildings. London Mayor Boris Johnson defended the massive security operation. We were always going to have loads of military personnel anyway, so that it hasn't really changed. Plus, B, I don't personally. I think most people in this country don't have any objection at all to seeing venues being properly invigilated by uh, professional military armed services people. Meanwhile, inside the Olympics, the London Organizing Committee is trying to quell public outcry over the empty seats at Olympic venues. Thousands of fans were told the games were sold out for years, while prime seats reserved largely for sports federations and corporate sponsors have remained empty. Organizers have started drafting in local children and army volunteers to fill the empty bleachers. The chairman of the London Organizing Committee, Sebastian Coe, says he's trying to resolve the issue. I don't want to see swathes of those seats empty, uh, and that's why we've, you know, we will make sure where we possibly can that we get people into those seats as and when they're not being used. Although many locals can't afford to attend the Games, this year's Olympics is estimated to cost the British taxpayers a staggering $17 billion. At the same time, residents near the Olympic Park have been subjected to sweeping censorship laws enacted by their government at the behest of the International Olympic Committee. The laws limit the use of Olympic language and imagery strictly to official sponsors such as Visa, McDonald's and GE. Meanwhile, activists are outraged that the Olympics 
Group's long list of sponsors includes companies such as Dow Chemical and BP. They say the corporation's human rights records are at odds with the Olympic ideals of global peace and goodwill. We go now to London. We're joined by Jules Boykoff. He is Associate Professor of Political Science at Pacific University, visiting scholar at the University of Brighton. He's been in England since April following the build-up to the Olympics and is writing a book on dissent in the Olympics. He played for the U.S. Olympic soccer team in international competition from 1989 to 1991 and had a piece in the New York Times headlined Olympian Arrogance. Jules Boykoff, welcome to Democracy Now! Uh, let's start off with the protests outside and the thousands of empty seats inside the Olympic arenas. Right. So last weekend, the Counter Olympics Network organized a large mobilization on, the, on last Saturday where more than a thousand people showed up from 50 different groups to protest what they see as the injustices around the games. We took a march uh, through some of the areas that are affected by the Olympics, walked through Bow Quarter, which includes a tall tower where some of those surface to air missiles that you mentioned are located. We saw army personnel peeking their heads over the, the top of the roof and looking down at us kind of curiously moving on to the end where there were speakers some of which we heard from in your clips running into this so I think it's important actually to take a step back before we think about the tickets and think about why people might be upset about the tickets in the bigger picture and that is because people in London have paid for these games and they definitely don't feel like they get what they're paying paying for back in 2005 when London won the bid for the games they told their citizens that the games were going to cost about 3.5 billion dollars after that, the price tag catapulted as soon as they learned that they won the bid, pointing some people to say that, in fact, uh, lowballing the costs and overhyping the benefits has become an Olympic sport in itself. By now, you can see the costs have gotten to almost $18 billion. And I think those numbers are staggering in themselves, but they deserve a closer look. If you calculate who's actually kicking in that money, somewhere between 88 and 98 percent is being paid for by the British taxpaying public. So 88 to 98 percent. British taxpayers are told that this is a public-private par partnership, but it's an extremely lopsided one at that. Uh, th that's led to the question among people, for whom does this Olympics juggernaut boom? Moody's gave a really clear answer to that question in the lead-up to the Games when they issued a report that said, actually, there's really not going to be any long-term gain for Londoners from hosting the Olympics. But in the short term, Moody's said that, in, that the beneficiaries would be what they call corporates. Recently, Tony Blair, who was instrumental in getting the bid for London back in 2005, said, hey, you people questioning the games, just be quiet. This is going to be a, quote, gigantic schmoozathon. Well, it's clear that he was talking about the Moody's corporates when he was talking about that, that gigantic schmoozathon, because that schmoozathon is not going to be for the people of Newham, one of the boroughs, one of the poorest areas in London who's hosting the games. It's not going to be for the people of the Clays Lane estate who are kicked out of their homes some 400 plus of them and had their to make to make way for Olympic venues. Uh, it's going to be for the corporates and this is extremely painful in the context of European austerity. People here in London know that uh, Europe is roiling in austerity. They've seen se serious budget cuts here in the UK and they're none too happy about having to pay the price for this Olympic Games. Now in terms of the tickets, that's been especially painful because they've handed over large blocks of tickets to the International Sports Federations to the corporate sponsors and also to that International Olympic Committee. Huge blocks, millions of tickets that they apparently aren't
aren't using. Also, I should say members of the media don't seem to be using their tickets as well. Meanwhile, there are tons of Londoners and people from around the country that applied to get tickets but were turned away. So people across the political spectrum are unhappy about the funding of the games and how that's now playing out in terms of ticketing. And that's Amy Goodman, uh, Democracy Now!, speaking with Jules Boykoff, professor, associate professor of political science at Pacific University. And uh, he is uh, studying the games uh, quite closely and uh, uh, a visiting scholar um, there in, uh, in the London area. And uh, he's going to be working on a book on dissent in the Olympics. Um, so a very interesting perspective um and he also was somebody who has written on uh, the dissent with uh, the Vancouver games um and there are some uh, great podcasts um uh, on some specific lectures around these very topics that he's given in London and you can go to the cityfm.org uh to find links for that um as well follow uh, the city on twitter at the city underscore fm and I do want to add that this is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and we are broadcasting live from CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to now go to uh, Julian Chain, and he is a spokesperson uh, with the Counter Olympics Network based in London, England, and uh, they've been very um, active on the ground in uh, protesting and organizing protests protests opposing the games um, and speaking up for uh, East London and uh, the boroughs um, in East London who um, uh, many people are seeing the effects um, of the games. Uh, Julian, he himself, uh, somebody who was evicted from his estate, um, from his um, uh, from his place, um, which he explains uh, when I spoke with him uh, just last week. And uh, he's going to talk um, specifically about the militarization um, and the clampdown um, policing of public space um, and East London specifically. And this is a, I had a very, uh, very long, um, very interesting and thorough conversation with Julian. And we're going to pick up this conversation uh, next week on the city. Um, and so uh, please be sure to tune in for that. Um, and you can uh, find more information. Again, everything is available at thecityfm.org and you can find uh, an archive of podcasts and information about upcoming programming there as well and links uh, specifically to a lot of the organizations and a lot of the uh, individuals that I'm speaking of. So again, uh, Julian Chain, um, he is a spokesperson, Counter Olympics Network, and uh, he also writes for uh, gamesmonitor.org.uk uh, or .uk.org. Again, Julian. Well, I mean, I got my start because I um, was evicted to make way for the Olympic Games. Um, uh, I was uh, I had to leave uh, where I lived, a place called Clay's Lane, um, in July 2007, um, because the, the state was uh, compulsorily purchased by the LDA, the London Development Agency, in preparation for the Games. Can you describe what it feels like to be in in East London or near the sites because um, certainly it's been described as a militarized city and um, can you speak to that at all yeah yeah sure um, what we what we have in in London is um, and this is around all of the Olympic facilities is uh, well first of all the Olympic Park is surrounded by a fence an electrified fence 5,000 volt electrified fence um, and all the way around these facilities, there are 
kind of um, there's fence, uh, further fencing and blocks of concrete blocking off certain roads. Um, and now there are also particular sections of road where there are searches going on. When you drive along those roads, you'll get stopped. You won't actually get searched necessarily. You're so it's like a checkpoint, asked, essentially. Exactly, it's yeah. a checkpoint. You'll be asked for identification. What are you doing there? Um, and um, there are particularly particular sensitive areas where this is happening. Now, I mean, it, it, I, it's a rather strange concept. This militarization would be pushing it too hard in the sense that the large parts of London, you don't see any military at all. It's, it's in particular areas, and it's right up against the facilities. It's not spread out into the neighboring streets. So if you go to Stratford town center, for example, and you walk through the smaller shopping center, there isn't actually any military presence there. Mm-hmm. When you cross the road over towards where Stratford station is, then you will see security guards. I don't think actually there's any military presence there. When you walk through Stratford, when you walk through the Westfield site, you will see more police, you will see some armed police, and then when you get up to the fencing where the Olympic Park is itself, then you will start seeing soldiers and um, uh, armed police and security guards in large numbers. So it's a kind of like a sort of process of, of gradually getting closer to the facilities. There are places where you, if you, like for example, I've been to do interviews, filmed interviews near a facility which is in a place called Leighton. Every time, or almost every time I go there, security guards will come over and ask what we're up to and usually sometimes the police will also appear and they will question the cameraman and the, the reporter and say why are you here etc etc all completely unnecessarily um i mean if you can imagine that a, a terrorist is going to walk up with a, a, a camera and stand around <laughs> i mean it's all kind of slightly mad really yeah. Um, I mean, of course, it's possible that somebody could do something like do that and have a have a, a, uh, a bomb strapped to themselves, in which case it's kind of rather stupid for security to go and approach them. They'd be better off just leaving them alone. What do you make of the extensive use of, um, of private security? Yeah, well, it's not just private security, uh, because as I say, police will also yeah. come. Yeah. But yes, it is private security companies which uh, do the initial kind of recce. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they are trained to make life difficult for camera crews. I mean, they, they have this, the, the, there are people who have been working inside of these companies looking at the kind of training that's going on and how the companies are telling their staff to go out and confront camera crews, photographers, and so on as a matter of course. And that's just stupid, and it's also very aggravating, and it means that uh, freedom of speech is kind of restricted in those specific areas. I can't say that it's a very wide area, and there are places where, uh, I mean, if I go and stand on a, a private piece of, uh, in a private mall somewhere, I may very well, and not, and nothing to do with the Olympics, I may very well get accosted by security there as well and told to move on. So, I mean, this kind of um, control of private space is becoming um, more problematic everywhere. Uh, around the Olympics, you have the added dimension of, as I say, armed police, which we don't have an armed police force in Britain. So this is um, this creates anxiety just in itself. Uh, um, and um, of course, you know, if you have armed police, they shoot people. So the wrong people get shot. In fact, there's an incident just recently where um, I'm not talking about the one for the riots last year, but in, a few days ago, somebody was shot. Um, 
because he was suspected that he had a bomb and it then turned out he didn't, although it does appear there may have been some sort of firearm, but it didn't have anything to do with terrorism by the looks of it. So it's rather, but this is and where does, some... Yeah. Does this tend shot. to be based on racial profiling? Sorry? Does this tend to be racially Sorry. based? Of course, yes. I mean, one has to understand that, of course, there is some element of sort of likelihood. I mean, this is a very difficult area about how do you identify potential terrorists. <laughs> and, um, of course, it annoys people within those communities because, I mean, to be quite blunt, there is going to be a focus on, say, for example, Indians and Pakistanis and people from the Middle East. Um, I'm afraid that is going to happen. Um, there's no two ways about it. But, of course, that also is very aggravating for those communities. It's an unsolvable problem, really, because... Um, the only way to combat terrorism of this kind is to penetrate those organizations. You, you have to rely on, um, well, it's two things. I mean, it's the penetration. It's also, of course, responding to political demands or political problems. So, I mean, it's a, this is a very, very, very difficult area. Okay. And I, it, it would be wrong to say that there isn't a security issue. There is a security issue. It's how you manage it. Um, I think that, the, that we have a situation of complete overkill. The, a lot of the measures which are being taken achieve nothing. They actually achieve confusion. You have more security guards than are needed. And as a result, actually, people get past this security. Um, people <laughs> got into the Olympic Park, you know, because actually there are very peculiar arrangements. And somebody walks up and they get past one block and then they go to the next one and say, oh, it's all right, you know, I know they've got through because et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, they blag their way in. So there are kind of, when you have very heavy security, you can also create more problems in security because you have so many different people doing the same thing and they get confused as to whether somebody else has agreed to somebody doing something. Um, and so you've got, um, then you have the sort of really peculiar things like putting missiles on tops of blocks of flats, which just make people annoyed. And, and also it's completely pointless because... If you're going to shoot down a jet coming into London, you don't shoot it down over the city. You shoot it down somewhere else in the country. And that was Julian Chen, and he is uh, a spokesperson with the Counter-Olympics Network. And uh, within that, you heard uh, him talk about uh, the policing and the increasing military, uh, private security and police presence uh, in East London. Um, but more than that, it's somewhat unevenly uh, geographically spread out. And so, um, and much like the, the Vancouver Games, uh, you know, regular neighborhoods, you wouldn't see a police or military um, security presence. But um, when you go to venues, uh, you certainly see uh, that change uh, very dramatically, and sort of the the ridiculous nature of uh, some of some of the um, methods and under which they they think they are managing the risk, um, putting uh, missile launchers on on residential buildings. So, um, but we're going to continue this conversation with Julian um, next week on the city, and we're going to be talking more specifically about the impact on East London. Um, and lower income and working class neighborhoods, um, the, the processes of gentrification, which the Olympics inevitably stimulate, and the growth machine politics, um, which serve to benefit um, a property elite um, and property developers. So um, all that and more on the next, uh, next episode of The City on CITR 11.9 FM and, uh, CJS, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Again, everything available at thecityfm.org um, with a full podcast archive. 
So uh, with that, we're going to um, wrap up the show. But um, before that, uh, we're going to end with a track from The Clash. Um, this is Police and Thieves. And um, thank you so much for listening. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. songs from Ma Petite, Sydney York, and many more. It's happening on Tuesday, August 21st at 9 p.m. at the Biltmore Cabaret. Tickets are $10 and all proceeds go to the Megaphone Magazine, which provides a voice and economic opportunities for the homeless and low-income community. Sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. Bop, 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 bop.